the work we do here is both very important for us personally and for our relationships, the communities that we live in, for the world. It's not only important, it is extraordinarily difficult. And to keep the flame of interest, determination, uh, a sense of worthwhileness alive in our practice, we need one very important understanding. And it is the understanding that what we do in both the very subtlest of ways and in the very grossest of ways makes a difference. Now that sounds pretty commonsensical. What we do makes a difference. But if we take it to its extreme extremes, then what we're actually saying is the difference it makes we're experiencing right now. This is another way of articulating what has come to be known as the law of karma. The law of karma is an articulation of what has been observed to occur in the mind as it goes along in its track, whether it's opening or closing, whether we're practicing or not. There are understandings to be gleaned from just observing how the mind unfolds over the course of time. And in the course of one very limited lifetime of 50, 60, 80, even 100 years, from being immersed in the perspective of that lifetime, it seems like, wow, there's a lot going on. But given the immensity of eternity, and the span of time that the law of karma speaks to, all the events of a lifetime can be seen to be a snap of a finger. And so when we begin to look at the unfolding of the mind, as we do here in practice, the understanding of the law of karma helps us to see beyond the immediacy of our current conditions and to begin to understand causes for this situation in the far distant unseen, maybe even unimaginable past. And to also understand or begin to sense and feel within us the consequences of our actions, which may not unfold in the present moment, and may not actually be felt or seen or have the conditions to support their ripening until far into the not-yet-seen future. However, there are those among us who have this vision that can see the past, can see the future, or can understand even maybe more profoundly than we in our ordinary busyness, the significance of how the day unfolds, how the week unfolds, how a life unfolds. And it's not accidental. It's not chaotic. It's not random. It's not controlled by some omnipotent, invisible anything. 
but rather if we look at the mind as Menindra so succinctly encouraged Joseph Goldstein if you want to know what the mind's like sit down and observe it if you want to know what your mind is like if you want to know where your past has been if you want to know where your future is going take a look at the present moment it's all there it's all written in our present experience of the body and mind and how we are currently relating to it the lesson from the past is here we are the lesson for the future is or the opportunity for the future is what are we going to do with it I want to speak about the law of karma because without a supportive understanding or maybe a comprehensive understanding of the law of karma we can't really put the efforts of our practice into a correct perspective you know we are so conditioned by our culture you know the instant gratification syndrome if you will or demand or that we expect from everything anything each other institutions responsiveness blinds us to sometimes our ambition our uh, demands that the Dharma perform for us look I've been sitting for three weeks come on give me the goods you know and the Dharma doesn't work that the mind doesn't unfold that way if you want to know the mind if you want to know what the mind's like you have to sit down and observe it patiently I might add but the mind does unfold and if we pay careful attention we can begin to discern the outlines of its movement if not the specifics so we're here some of us are yogis, some of us are volunteer staff, some of our guests, some are teachers, some are... Maybe there are unseen beings in the room, and there may be some little squirmy things around. There's a lot of beings here. Why are we here? What has brought us all here? That question can be answered at any number of levels you know, at a purely kind of uh, functional level. I'm here because, well, I'm the teacher. And you're here because you chose to do a retreat. There. That's it. That's the depth of it. Or that's the superficiality of it. And if we look a little closer, we can see, oh, well, maybe there's some psychological need for me to be in this position and for you to be in that position. There are many causes. There are many conditions that have roots far into the past that are weaving this moment into existence and we don't know them all but there's one important teaching to be discovered in looking at the cause and condition of our being here and I'll point to it by telling a story it said at the time of Dipankara Buddha we live in the time of Gautama Buddha who was born and lived 2500 years ago there were Buddhas prior to that eons eons upon eons world cycles before that and in one of those long forgotten cycles of existence there was a Buddha called Dipankara Buddha when he was coming to visit one village an ascetic who lived nearby heard about it saw all the excitement in the village and went to meet the Dipankara Buddha 
And when he saw the Dipanka Buddha coming towards him, he recognized the qualities of Buddha, he recognized the, uh, the purity of mind, the, the nobility, uh, the, the power. Because it said that this ascetic Sumedha had so purified his mind that a single word of teaching from the Buddha, and he would have become fully liberated. So he had a pretty open mind, a pretty comprehensive uh, understanding of the situation, but he hadn't heard the teachings of liberation. And he saw the Buddha and he understood from his own perspective what a Buddha was, and he made a, a wish or an aspiration, a vow to himself that one day he too hoped to become a Buddha so that he could help others in their struggle to be free of suffering. And as he made that vow, Dipankar Buddha, knowing his mind, knowing the ascetic's mind, saw that he'd made this vow. And he did a quick uh, you know, kind of karmic scan <laughs> and uh, saw that there weren't any viruses there too. <laughs> and he just, he saw that this ascetic had the qualities to be perfected, to become a Buddha. And so he turned to the ascetic and he confirmed to him that indeed at some point in the far distant future he would become a Buddha. Well, there was a prince born in India 2,500 years ago, Prince Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva. Having made that vow, the ascetic Sumedha became a Bodhisattva a being who is destined to become a Buddha. Throughout innumerable lifetimes, hundreds upon hundreds of lifetimes, this being took birth in every possible imaginable situation. In order to face those situations, those circumstances, those conditions, to learn the lessons of the power of the paramis, to develop the paramis, to develop patience, to put himself in every possible situation that would try his patience, or where he could develop loving-kindness, or equanimity, or renunciation. And he willingly undertook this in order to become a Buddha, to help others. And so he went through a tremendous amount of suffering, challenge, difficulty, uh, calling forth his utmost determination, energy, power, commitment. And he did it willingly in order to become a Buddha. And he was born as Prince Siddhartha, and we know the story. Lived in the palace, did his practice, sat under a tree and woke up. Became Gautama Buddha, the Buddha of our time. He taught for 45 years. The teachings have been carried on and handed down for 2,500 years. We are sitting in this room tonight because of, in part, that vow of that ascetic Sumedha. Eons, eons upon eons, of time, world cycles ago. If that vow hadn't been made, if that Buddha hadn't been realized, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing. We might be here doing something else, but we wouldn't be doing this. What we can see, or what we can learn, or what we can begin to sense or intuit from this story is the tremendous power of intention. Mm. 
not only the power of intention, but the power of a pure mind's intention. And we can see that, we can begin to sense that there was a lawful unfolding of that intention over the course of innumerable lifetimes resulting in the Gautama Buddha's realization 2,500 years ago. It's not, a, it's not an accident. It wasn't from mere wishful thinking. It wasn't for, from kind of hopeful guessing. But it was from this powerfully pure mind's intention being fulfilled. Conditions coming together to fulfill the karmic result of that karmic action, that intention. There are many conditions unfolding now for us to be here. One of them is the karmic result of the ascetic Sumedha. There are many of our own karmic results unfolding right now in order for us to be here. It's said that to be born a human being out of all the planes of existence that one can be born in. To be born a human being is most fortunate. It is a realm of experience, unlike the lower realms, unlike the animal realm, or the hungry ghost realm, or the hell realms, where beings are just really tortured and really just suffer tremendously and have no opportunity to hear the Dharma, to practice the Dharma. They don't experience pleasure. Nor is it being like being born in the heaven realms where you're so entangled in enjoying pleasurable experiences, you don't have any inclination to practice. And so in both situations, the Dharma is far from your mind. But in the human realm, we have enough pleasure, enough ease in our life to have a little free time, a little, a little space in our life. But there's just enough uh, suffering and dukkha and challenge to want to practice. And it's this balance of pleasure and pain in the human realm that makes it such an ideal place for hearing, practicing the Dharma. Sometimes when we hear about the law of karma, it sounds like the law of punishment. You know, you know, people hear the side that says, if you do something unskillful, you're going to be punished. That's all they hear. And so they listen to a, a, a karma dharma talk as oh, burdensome, dreadful, oppressive, despairing, and causes more suffering. But as much as the past karmic actions condition the present moment's experience, our present karmic actions condition our future experience. Our life, the unfolding of our mind, is not chiseled into stone. It's not. It's not predestined by any sense of the word. There are opportunities in every moment to develop the paramis. I'm sure here you've seen plenty of opportunity to develop patience, loving-kindness, renunciation, equanimity. That is making best use of your human life conditions. Whatever, and I know it's not been easy. I, I know a lot, of, I mean, I hear you experience a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of torment, of confusion and bewilderment.
lot of sizzling. <laughs> and so we can respond in at least two ways. Hate it, judge ourselves and judge everybody else and wish for a better future. Well, we can be mindful of it, we can be aware of it, we can be develop the paramis and not only wish for a better future, but create the conditions for a better future. When I say the law of karma, the law that governs the unfolding of the mind, I'm not talking about a law that uh, the Buddha made. I'm not talking about a law that God made. I'm not talking about a law that we each somehow made. But I'm talking about what has been observed by those who paid very close attention. You know the law, of, we say the law, of, you know the law of gravity? Where did the law of gravity come from? You know, just kind of chiseled in stone and handed down to Newton? No, no. Yeah. He observed, he felt <laughs> the apple fall on his head, or whatever, whoever it was. I guess it was Newton. And began to understand the law of gravity. Just, you know, kind of observed. Oh, you know, when this goes there and that happens that way, well, there's, there's, there's something happening here. And by observing falling things, measuring certain observable events, the law of gravity was able to be articulated. Nobody made it, nobody invented it, nobody you know, thought it up, but it's an articulation of what's been observed. Well, the same with uh, the law that governs the unfolding of plants and seeds. Nobody made it up. You know, if you plant an orange seed, you're going to get a pear tree. No, it, we know. You plant an orange tree, orange seed, you get an orange tree, and so forth and so on. How do we know that? Well, have any of you observed, have any of you taken a seed from a fruit, put it in the ground, and watched it grow and produce a similar fruit? Probably some of you have, but most of us have not. And yet, is there anyone in the room that doubts if you plant an orange seed, you get an orange tree? We believe that. Because enough people have observed it and articulated it and confirmed it, we now believe it, just like that. But most of us have not observed it. The law of plant propagation is an articulation of what has been observed. The law of karma is an articulation of what has been observed in the unfolding of the mind. Have most of us observed it? Not close enough to confirm it, but maybe enough to sense that it's kind of, yeah, maybe it's happening that way. But maybe there's a way we can listen to the law of karma and use it in our practice to support our practice, to support our understanding, to support our efforts, to support our unfolding. The law of karma, in its most succinct form, says or states, actions of thinking, speaking, and behaving are motivated by or are fueled by an intention. And the fuel of that intention can be wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. And what I mean by wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful is actions 
that are skillful lead to pleasant results in happiness. Actions that are unskillful lead to unpleasant results in, in suffering of one sort or another. Nobody's making it have to be that way. No, you, know, you can't blame anybody for it. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to blame yourself. You don't have to blame God. You don't have to blame the teacher. It's just what's been observed. Now, what actions are skillful? If, if that's been observed and we're sincerely interested in not suffering, what actions are skillful? Through observation, it has been noticed actions that are that are that spring from love, connection, respect, consideration for others, uh, compassion, generosity, and understanding. These actions, these karmic actions lead to happiness. Actions which are unskillful that lead to suffering are actions, thoughts, beliefs, speaking that is concerned with oneself only in a very limited, needy, uh, fearful, get from myself at anybody's expense, un- understanding, not comprehensive, not recognizing our interdependent place. Well, if we speak and act and think in that way from a very fearful, limited, narrow, self-only perspective, it's been observed. We're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. Nobody's making it happen. You know, you don't even have to blame yourself. You know, when you throw a ball in the air and it comes to the ground, do you blame gravity? You don't blame gravity. You see, well, that's just the way things are. So, if you act, speak, and uh, think in a very needy, greedy, selfish, and a confused way, it'll be painful. Now, why and how can this understanding support our practice? First of all, we meet a tremendous amount of difficulty in our practice. We meet pain in the body, pain in the mind, confusion. We, it's challenging for all of us. There isn't anyone who's done this practice that hasn't faced what each one of us is facing every day. It's just not possible to open the mind without seeing what we are all seeing. If we misunderstand the significance of what we are seeing, we'll judge ourselves, we'll criticize ourselves, we'll blame each other, we'll condemn our parents, we'll, st- we'll do anything except develop our paramis. But if we understand the law of karma, we can begin to understand, you know what? Somewhere in my confused, bewildered, needy, greedy, uh, unkind, harsh, critical past, I planted some seeds which are ripening into this kind of unpleasant fruit right now. Okay. We also understand how to work with it. This is really difficult, it's really unpleasant, it's really painful. If I meet it with anger, criticism, aversion, judgment, blaming, fear, paranoia, the fruit of those thoughts or actions is going to be more of the same. On the other hand, if I meet this challenging, oppressive situation 
whatever it might be, with patience, with trying to understand it, with letting go of the needy, greedy, I got to get from me, to bring some balance of mind to it, to, to be generous, to be kind to myself, to others. If that's the way we can meet the challenges and difficulties of our life, the result is going to be pleasant and, and happiness-making, both in the immediate moment and in the far unseen future. We know the immediacy of the suffering of anger, irritation, frustration, disappointment, ambition, judgment, blaming, self-criticism. In the moment of having those states of mind, immediately, it's, it's torturous. It's suffering right there. We don't have to go, we don't have to wait. We don't have to go looking for it. It's pretty obvious. That's pretty... F- and I'm sure you've all had times of seeing that even when your practice is challenging, it's difficult, it's demanding, if you meet it with a sincerity or an integrity, uh, a willingness, there's a certain sense of having done your best. I'm not going to say it's pleasant or that it even makes you happy, but you haven't compounded it, the challenge, with unnecessary burdensome suffering. And that's the, that's the path. That's the path of disentangling the mind from the causes of suffering. The law of karma also not only offers us an understanding of the conditions we face in our life that are the result of past actions, but the law of karma actually encourages us to be proactive, not just responsive, but proactive in searching for situations in order to develop wholesome, skillful karma. Look for opportunities to be generous. Look for opportunities to be kind, to be responsive, to be understanding, rather than reluctantly wait for them to come banging on your door. But if you understand the law of karma, then you, then you, you understand how and why to take initiative to generate those forces in your mind. Because it's the mind that generates the intention. It's the mind that experiences the result. Is there any doubt about that? We, we really understand that what we say, what we do, how we think comes from the mind. And suffering Yeah, there's body suffering, but the suffering of the mind is far, far worse. It's, it's tormenting. Okay. The Law of Karma also offers one additional understanding that if we aspire to realize the goodness within us, and we act in support of that aspiration, we have a guarantee that, we'll receive, that we will realize it. A, gu- a guarantee. It's not like maybe. It's if you aspire and you act to support it. And we've talked a lot about clarifying our aspiration and acting in ways to support your aspiration. That's what practice is, acting in ways to support your aspiration. Then 
there's nothing, there's no one that can stop you from realizing your aspiration. It's a matter of time of developing the paramis, and they will come to perfection. And we can see the movement towards perfection in a single lifetime. Uh, in less than a single lifetime. You can see it in a month-long retreat. Of course, a month-long non-retreat can move us in the other direction as much. But nevertheless, if we act in support of our aspirations, there is nothing to stop you. There's no one, there's no force in the world or otherworldly force that can stop you from purifying your mind and experiencing the results of your wholesome actions. Nothing. That's fantastic. I mean, to me, that's like, I'll make the effort. You know, I'll put up with it. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care how much pain, difficulty, challenge, frustration. That's not the point. The point is, I see the goal. I see the direction and there's nothing. Temporary impediment. Learn how to climb. Learn how to dissolve it. Go through it. Whatever it is, that's what practice will do for you. Wow. The law of karma. Thank goodness. I was going to say thank God, but hey, thank the way things are. Why not? Okay. If karma is action, thinking action, behavioral action, speaking action, if we create karma by acting, and actions are conditioned by intention, as I'm sure you've been begun to notice, the body doesn't move unless you have an intention and follow through with it. The body doesn't speak unless you have an intention and follow through in it. And when you get a little closer and subtler in the mind, you'll see that your thoughts too are actually intended. Okay. If intention is the causal condition for acting, and acting is the karma that will produce the pleasant or unpleasant results, Let's look at intention. That's the seed of karma. What makes an intention powerful? Or what makes an intention insignificant? The ascetic Sumedha had an intention to become a Buddha. Must have been a powerful intention to produce such a powerful, far-reaching effect. What made that intention so powerful? A couple of things. One is the energy of the mind. Remember, that ascetic had already perfected the paramis enough to become fully awakened, energy being one of the paramis. And some of you have begun to see what the effortlessly energized mind is actually like. Tremendous, tremendous energy in the mind that is unstoppable. It's just no obstacle. There's nothing to be an obstacle. Everything is seen as just next step on the path. Not even considered an obstacle, no matter what it is. That kind of energy is unstoppable. Okay, the more energy of the mind, the more powerful the intention. The more pure the mind, the more powerful the intention. And when I talk about pure, when, I'm, when I say pure, I'm referring to how clean the mind is. We know the nature of mind is, is clean. There's no, there's, there's no defilements in the nature of mind. But 
we don't live in the nature of mind. We live in our relatively conditioned mind, and it can be full of mm, confusions, bewilderments, you know, ambitions, and you know, kind of deceptions, and you know, kind of. Okay, if those are cleaned out temporarily, if we've really purified the mind so that we are consistently speaking and acting and thinking from a place of connection and respect and understanding. That intention will be that much more powerful. If our mind's confused and bewildered and, you know, it's kind of, it doesn't know whether it wants to do something for itself or somebody else and, and it has an intention, that's a confused intention. That intention has no power behind it. It's kind of, it's kind of dissipated off into a few different directions and a few different possibilities and, and many different results. And, and I, maybe that's what I want to do. I'm not sure. I, you know, wow. If you get any result out of that intention uh, that's pleasant, you're lucky. So, the more pure the mind, the more powerful the intention. Energy of the mind, purity of the mind, and the frequency of the intention. If you have a single intention to do, to speak, to act, It has its effect. But most actions and most courses of action take a commitment, as, as Kamala spoke about last night. It takes repeated commitment of that intention. You know, you don't just decide to do a retreat once. You decide to do the retreat every moment you try to be mindful. You know, it'd be nice if you could just say, I'm going to do the retreat once, and that's all you had to generate, and it just kind of unfolded by itself. But your being here after three weeks or after a week has taken a lot of recommitment, re-intentioning, if you will, to be here. And the more frequently you re-intend to be here, the more powerful your practice in being here. If you're still wavering about whether you should be here or not, <laughs> your practice is a little weak. And I'm not saying that uh, critically. I think you can observe that yourself. That when your intention of being here and making the effort to practice is kind of wavering, that intention doesn't have much result. Okay. So, to the extent that we energize our mind or develop the energy of the mind, purify the mind of the hindrance, hindrances, and repeat or frequently generate the intention to be mindful, to be understanding, to be loving, to be respectful, whatever, the more powerful they become. The more powerful the intention, the more powerful the karma, the more powerful the result. Now, the mind generates the intention. The mind experiences the result. Well, right now, we're engaged in Dharma practice for two weeks <coughs> or a month. And all sorts of karmic results are coming due. You know, they're coming up for, for uh, fruition by living in this harmonious community and, and having the intention to practice Dharma, all of our good Dharmic karma is coming to fruition here. It's like we have the opportunity. We hear the teachings every night. We get the support of everyone here all day long. Our present mental condition draws forth from the past the karma that it's most aligned with. No doubt we've all done some pretty um, <clears throat> unskillful things in the past. I think. If not this lifetime, maybe in a previous lifetime. And so we've, we've got these karmic seeds in our little bag here that 
could produce some pretty <laughs> unpleasant results. But we're in this wholesome environment. We're, in, we're having tre uh, tremendous amount of wholesome intentions. Those unwholesome seeds have no place to sprout here. Oh yeah, we've, we've got our knee pain and our back pain and our critical mind and judgments. But believe me, we have some more unpleasant karmic seeds than that in our peg. But they don't get the chance to sprout. They don't get any fuel here. There's no ground for them to sprout and, and develop fruition. Because the ground of our mind is the, is the place where karmic seeds sprout. On the other hand, if we had the opportunity and we, we entered a life of crime, you know, deception and crime and, you know, violence and all that, all the karmic seeds of our previous Dharma practice would not have the opportunity to sprout. You just, you just wouldn't start thinking about being loving, kind, and generous, and understanding. Because your mind is totally preoccupied with something else. And so putting yourself in a wholesome situation engenders and brings forth from the past karma that supports your current state of mind. I remember when I first started practice, and I think I told the story earlier in the retreat, a couple of years after I did my first retreat, the Meditation Center in Massachusetts was bought and up and running, and I, I went on staff. And the first year that I was on staff there, uh, there was a Burmese monk who had come to America to teach. And it was the first time that I had, I'd, never, I'd never seen a monk. I didn't even know monk anything. I didn't know anything about monks. And this monk came to the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And we were, during the three-month course, so we were told, oh, there's, there's a Burmese monk coming. And uh, he's a pretty special Burmese monk. Uh, so he's going to give us a week's worth of teaching. I don't know. So I, we heard about this monk. It was Tongpulo Sayadaw. And when he was, you know, he was the kind of monk, he was an exceptional monk. He was a scholar until he was in his mid-30s or 40s. Then he decided he really wanted to realize what he was teaching and went into practice, went to a f remote area of Burma and was practicing and kept being bothered by the villagers who wanted him to teach or wanted him to be the local, the local monk or something. And so he went even further away until he got way out in the bush in this cave. He went into this cave. And he had his practice. You know, monks go on their alms round and collect their food each day. And he went in this cave and he stayed for 16 years doing his practice. Okay. Well, after 16 years, he knew his teacher had died. So he came out of the cave. He went to his teacher's monastery. Sure enough, his teacher had just died. So he spent a year taking care of the monastery and, you know, taking care of his teacher and paying respects and getting another abbot for the monastery, and okay, after a year, went back in the cave. Stayed 17 years. You know, he just comes out for his alms round, does his alms round, back in the cave, practice. Well, after 17 years, he came out, or now he's got uh, 33 years in the cave, practicing. Okay. So he comes out. Well, come to find out, he hasn't laid down for... 50 years. Hasn't slept for 35 years. This is his practice. That's the quality of his mind. Okay. Now, he comes to America to start teaching. <laughs> you know, mindful. What's being mindful all about? Well, I saw this monk, and he's just kind of this old wizened fellow, just kind of walking around, you know. And what's he teach? Straight Dharma. You know, watch your breath, pay attention, note, be patient. You know, nothing different than I'm saying. But I, <laughs> fine, please don't mistake the quality. <laughs> but he, he did a couple, of, there was a few times he was really interesting. 
we'd go to a, a group interview, and there'd be 35 people in the room, you know, and they all look like, you know, Western yogis. <laughs> Burmese monk, okay. He'd, they'd come in, they'd all sit down, he'd scan the room, he'd look around, boom, 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 he'd go, are you a doctor? He'd look around, you a doctor? And it would be translated back and forth, and sure enough, that person was a doctor. Every time. <laughs> I saw him do this half a dozen times. How did he do that? Well, how did he know? I wasn't even wearing my hospital fatigues or whatever they asked. Like, how do you know? Well, that's the quality of his mind. Well, okay, he spent a week at the meditation center. Now, remember, I'd never seen him. I didn't even know, I didn't know what a monk was. I never. But there arose in my mind, I want to be a monk. I want to be a monk. I, I, that was my desire. That was my aspiration. I didn't, I didn't know what it meant, but I wanted to be one. <laughs> you know, I, I was ready to do it. I, you know, I wanted a mind like that. I wanted to know. I wanted to be able to know what he knew. Well, I didn't have any karmic support for that intention. I had to struggle through an additional eight years of retreats, a couple of years of staff, uh, several years on the board of directors. I, I just had to do my, I had to pay my dharma dues, so to speak, and just develop my paramis for eight years. Then everything came together. The karmic support was there. I went off to Burma and became a monk or ordained for a while. No matter how much I tried, I couldn't, I couldn't get there before I did. I didn't know it at the time. When I look back, I now see what was going on. My aspiration had outpaced my karma. But nevertheless, even though I totally forgot that aspiration most of those eight years, something didn't forget. It was in there cooking, germinating, and kind of developing, sprouting. And when the fuel was there, when the karmic support was there, okay, there's the opportunity. What's your aspiration? What's your Dharma aspiration? What's cooking inside of you? Where are you headed? Kamala began teaching the equanimity practice today. And the phrase for equanimity practice, or one of the phrases for equanimity practice is, beings are owners of their actions. Beings are heirs of their actions. You know, we have karma as our true property. If we understand the law of karma, we begin to understand that all we really own is our past karmic actions. That's all we really own. Things of the world, material things, knowledge, pretty insignificant in the course of how you're going to fulfill your aspiration. What really supports our aspiration is karmic actions from the past and karmic actions in the present. And when we understand the law of karma, it really helps a lot to support the equanimity of the mind because it's not accidental that we're experiencing or that anyone else is experiencing what they're experiencing. It's not accident, it's not chaos, it's nobody's fault, it's nobody to blame. It's 
the lawful unfolding of their karma as our aspirations and the fulfillment of our aspirations will be the lawful unfolding of our actions in support of it. right view of karma is I want to say and I believe essential to support our practice because we we do face extraordinary conditions in our life and in our practice really difficult to understand and sometimes only the law of karma can offer an outline or a template for understanding what we're experiencing, how we're experiencing, why we're experiencing. Because the law of karma encompasses this tremendous expanse of time. The infinite past, lifetimes of actions have been taken producing this result that we each are experiencing. And every moment is the opportunity to co-create our future. It's not a given. Nobody's tomorrow is already written. We have the opportunity today to plant the seeds we reap tomorrow through how we respond how we how responsive we are to the current situation it is the most creative work of art any one of us will ever do is to create the beauty in our individual and collective lives so let's sit for a minute William Stafford writes, Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but you do not know why, you are just lucky, and you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. So thank you for attending to this Dharma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.